Let's read God's word together. Deuteronomy 5:17. Part of the Ten Commandments. This is the sixth commandment. It says simply, "You shall not murder." You shall not murder. We're going through a series in the Ten Commandments. This is number six, as I just said. Um, and it's, I, I found it really interesting and really helpful to uh, open up each commandment. And so we're doing one a week. And um, last week we were looking at honoring your father and mother. And uh, one of the reasons we're taking some time to really examine hard the Ten Commandments is because they have formed such a crucial part of, of Western culture and our own society, our own understanding, particularly as Western people, of right and wrong. And, uh, uh, you know, it sort of underpins much of our, our legal system and uh, our, our general sense of right and wrong. These things don't just sort of, uh, aren't always self-evident truths. Uh, in fact, whether, whether secular people or non-religious people, um, you know, like to admit or not, they are founded on these ancient uh, law codes that we see, developed, of course, over, over many years, but founded upon these ancient law codes that we see in the Hebrew scriptures and in the Christian scriptures as well after that. So we're looking today at this issue of murder. Thou shalt not murder, to use the old terms. So we're going to look uh, this morning at the law itself and what is the, how does the Bible understand that law. We're going to open it up because it's more than just uh, those four words. And then we're going to think about how the gospel um, changes or, or, or uh, interprets the way that we look at that law and how it, how it works in our lives. And thirdly and finally, we're going to look at how then we respond to this commandment in today's society, okay? So first of all, we're going to look at the law. And uh, we're going to think, we're going to use the sort of terminology today of fruit and root, all right? Fruit is that thing which is produced when it is planted, okay? And, and so when I talk about the fruit of the law, I'm talking about the practices and behaviors that come from the law. If we think of the law as a seed, uh, the word of God as a seed, then what comes out of it? You know, what's the practice or behavior? What's the fruit? Um, thou shalt not murder. You shall not murder. Sorry, I'm a bit close to this thing. Here. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for murder is rasa, uh, which is quite simply refers to uh, one person getting killed by another. That's what it means. And that includes things like murder, premeditated killing of another person, manslaughter, non-premeditated killing of another person, but it extends throughout all of human life. And that includes life in the womb right through to the extreme of life on the other end of the scale, to, to old age. But it also includes negligence. So it's not just the deliberate killing of another person, but, it's, but it's, it's behavior that will lead to the death of another person that you could have done something differently and yet you didn't. Uh, so, for example, uh, when it says here, do not murder, um, there's another sort of law that explains it a bit later on, Deuteronomy 22. It says this, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Okay, so according to Deuteronomy 22, you can break this commandment, the sixth commandment, by not building a safety system around the roof of your house and someone falls and dies and kills, you know, kills themselves. That's your fault, that's on you, and you've broken that commandment. Okay, so you can already start to see, even just a few chapters time, a few chapters later, how thou shalt not murder. It's not just when you pick up uh, an axe and kill kill someone else. There's more to it. Or there's another one here in Exodus 21. If you uh, happen to own some ox or some cattle, and one of your oxes is known uh, for its violent behaviour, it's, it's maybe caused harm to someone in the past. It's gored someone with one of its. Uh, what do they have? Tusks? No, 
Horns, yeah, with one of his horns, uh, it kills a person. And say it goes and you know kills a person. It's your ox, and you knew it was violent. Not only is the ox going to get the chop, but so will you. You will have to answer for your punishment. And there, you know, there is the death penalty um, in the in the Old Testament scriptures given to someone who didn't prevent their ox or their animal um, from killing someone else. So we can start to see it's not just uh, directly killing someone. Um, it's, it's, it's behaviors that will lead to other people's death as well. And so where do we, where do we get this from? Why is this such a big deal to, to, to God, to the Hebrew Scriptures, shall we say? Um, well, the basis, uh, as we've seen uh, over the last few weeks, and we're starting to see more and more of this now as we go on, is that all people, all people irrespective of race and religion and background and all that, all people are made in the image of God. Way back at the beginning, humankind, it says in Genesis 1, 26, according to God uh, and, and God's you know, account of, of creation, says that um, uh, let us make humankind in our image, in the image of God. He created them, male, male and female. He created them. Every single person, irrespective of race or religion, is created in the image of God. And, and what does that mean? That means that each individual person sat in this room today and you will ever meet ever in your life reflects something of the goodness of God, reflect something of the character of God, the, the, the amazing gloriousness of God is reflected in each human being. And so therefore, you can, it stands to reason, if you mistreat another person, if you harm another person, if you murder another person, you can start to see, can't you, that that is an offense to the God whose image they bear. So you can start to see how these things start to work together and why murder and killing someone else is such an offense to God because every single person is an image bearer. Okay? But there's more. It goes on. Because with every commandment you ever get, particularly like this in the Ten Commandments, it's not only a prohibition. Do not do this thing here. Do not kill someone. Do not lie. Do not steal. Um, it's not only a prohibition because the rest of the law code, particularly in the first five books of the Bible, is an extended commentary on, let's say, the, t- the Ten Commandments. Uh, and it's an application of those Ten Commandments. So what we have here is a negative statement, don't do this. Uh, but also there is a corresponding positive um, concern as well in the law uh, that sort of is the, you know, the other side of the coin, if you like to the commandment, do not murder. What am I saying? I'm saying this. Uh, all throughout the law code, there is written in various ways and various laws a concern to promote life and to promote well-being for everybody within the community. So, for example, in, in Deuteronomy 22, we read this. Um, if, if you see, um, you, you know, you're a member of this ancient community, and you see someone's sheep or ox wandering off and it sort of wanders into your yard, You're to return that ox or sheep straight away to its owner. And if you don't know the owner, it goes on to say, you're to keep that sheep or ox, you're to tend it, you're to give it the best life possible so that when the owner returns, he or she can have their their, their property back and, uh, you know, they are blessed because you have been looking after that animal for them. So it's not just not killing people. Uh, in, in, in mind in this law, but also a concern to promote life and well-being for every single person. So uh, God, uh, as, as we've, we've thought, um, creates every single person in his image. And so therefore, we are commanded not to murder them, not to kill them for that reason. But also, we are commanded throughout the Old Testament uh, to promote their well-being, to do what is best for our neighbors. That is the flip side of this commandment. So we are to care for those who need it. We are to give justice for those who don't have it. We're to promote righteousness in every area of our lives. That is the flip side of do not murder someone. 
only want the best. Provide the best you can for each person that comes across your path. And God says, according to his law, I want a people, I want a community of people who are going to reflect my love and my justice and my purpose. That's why our series is called Ten Commandments, Ten Words, Living as a People of Love, Justice and Purpose. Because if we get these Ten Commandments, if we understand their significance, not just for those Old Testament people, but for us today, and we start to follow that, that code, then we start to become, as a church and as a people, a people of love and justice and purpose. And you can start to see why. So that is the fruit of the law, okay? Not just the active action of killing someone, taking their life. It is the negligence that comes from you know, leading to loss of life. But also, it is about promoting life and well-being. It's a positive aspect to the law as well, which is crucially important. All of this stuff we can think of in terms of the fruit of the law, you know, the, the behaviors and practices and, and all that. Um, but as we come now to the, the pages of the New Testament, we see time and again, he does it here, Jesus takes us deeper still. Okay? So I'm sorry if you came here this morning, you thought, oh good, this one's on thou shalt not murder. That's one commandment I can, you know, pretty much cope with okay. I don't know your background, but I'm, I'm assuming most people haven't, haven't murdered someone else. Um, but Jesus takes us deeper. Jesus is always more radical than we want him to be sometimes. In fact, the word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. Jesus always takes you back to the roots. He takes you back to the deepest part of you and your life. Uh, Jesus, of course, was the, the teacher extraordinaire of the law. Uh, you read in the Gospels that time and again, Jesus went around teaching the people, and uh, he was teaching the law. But it says that he was not like the other teachers of the law. Perhaps he wasn't dry and academic, or he wasn't sort of aloof and, you know, uh, patronizing. People hung on every word that came from Jesus when he was teaching. They were amazed by him, astounded by his teaching. And most often what he was doing was opening up the law and getting back to the roots. And so he does that when it comes to this commandment here. He intensifies the law. Jesus, when he teaches, he clarifies the law. He enlarges the law. He deepens the law. He always takes us back to the heart of the matter. Jesus is the only perfect interpreter of the Old Testament. So what does he say? I've got a slide here. Jesus interprets for us the sixth commandment. He says this. You have heard that it was said... To those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Welcome to church. These are Jesus' words, not mine. So all I'm doing is quoting what he said. But you can see, even, even at a quick glance, when Jesus is interpreting that Old Testament law, he is taking the law further, he's taking it deeper, and it's more than just simply avoiding homicide. It's more than even just living a nice life that can benefit other people around you. Jesus is saying, and you've got it right behind me, that comes from Matthew 5, 21 and 22, even if you hold anger in your heart towards a brother, and that means someone else in the covenant community, if you hold anger in your heart towards another person, then you are liable to judgment, that is judgment from God. If you insult someone with your words out of a heart of anger towards them, 
you're in trouble. If you verbally abuse someone and say, you fool, then you are liable for the judgment of God and the fire of hell, or the hell of fire. Nothing quite like taking it back to the roots when it comes to Jesus. It is so penetrating. It is so uncomfortable to even read these words. Could it be? Is Jesus really right that we break the law if, we, if we're just angry in our hearts towards someone else? Is it really that big a deal? See, Jesus always couples the root with the fruit. We could say in general, in general terms, the Old Testament uh, perhaps highlights or focuses on the, the fruit, the behaviors, things you must do, very, very general. Jesus focuses or points to the root. But the two are connected. It's the same tree. As religious people, religious people in general, like to think externally. Religious people like to think of laws and, and, and barriers. They like to think in terms of black and white. Religious people love boundaries. They love clear lines. Why is that? Because they're manageable. They're doable, right? You, can, you know where you stand with clear boundaries and, and they, with a bit of effort, we can do it, you think to yourself. And that's all well and good. And there was a lot of people in Jesus' day who thought just like that. But then Jesus comes along and messes all that up and, and, and goes way too far and overboard. Jesus said, no, no, no. It's not that easy to please God. Even avoiding murdering people and living justly to, to help other people and, and bring them to, to fullness of life and all that. Even that is not enough, he says. Because it is possible to obey all of these laws and keep all of these commandments that he puts in place and be a good little boy and girl. And yet, and yet, you can do all that and yet still be rebelling against God in your heart. Still bringing guilt and judgment upon yourself in your heart. It is possible to follow God's laws, but at the most profound level, your heart's not in it. At the core of your being, you see, it is entirely possible to hate God and hate other people and yet at the same time living a very good, moral, wonderful life on the outside. You're not being genuine. You're not being authentic if your behavior and your innermost heart's desire are at odds with one another. You might be able to fool other people. You might even be able to fool yourself. But what Jesus is saying here is that you cannot fool God. This is profoundly upsetting. Let's face it. This is profoundly upsetting. But Jesus here is not really creating anything new in this sense. He is simply highlighting what religious people like to hide from themselves and from one another. Jesus says that the Ten Commandments are only possible when it is all in. Your heart, your mind, and your body. All in for God. That is the only way you can avoid breaking these commandments. And here's the thing we need to know. The fruit, that is the practice, always comes after the root. That's why Jesus goes after the root. It doesn't come the other way around. So murder, manslaughter, intentional killing according to the Bible and highlighted by Jesus, always starts in the heart. It always comes from your innermost being. 
It always begins under the surface. You can't see what's going on when the roots are developing. And it comes to the surface in different ways. It manifests in different ways. For some people, it is outright cold-blooded murder. But according to Jesus, that's not what gets you ultimately in trouble with God. It's not great, but it's not what gets you ultimately. It is what is going on in your heart. And if you are carrying a boiling anger in your heart, according to Jesus, you carry the guilt of the sixth commandment upon yourself. So, sorry to upset you here, but it is not as simple as avoiding murdering someone and thinking you get a free pass to the seventh commandment. Sorry about that. This is much bigger than I realized and than perhaps you're realizing. We can, of course, break this commandment by murdering people, but that's not the only way to break it. We can violate it, of course, by not doing what we could have done to seek the welfare and life of our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? Of course, that question came up to Jesus. Who is our neighbor that we should be looking after and blessing and, and bringing uh, well-being and life to? Well, Jesus said, it's whoever comes across your path, whoever you are connected to, whatever that looks like for you. So if you are withdrawn from offering care and love to someone else, if you are passive when you should have offered help if you should have advocated for justice and you kept your mouth closed, then the guilt of the sixth commandment is on you too. So we've examined the law. And perhaps it's worse news than you were hoping to hear this morning when you came to church. But the good news is we can study the law and it can shape our hearts and challenge us. And yet we have the gospel, we have grace. But I hope that, that as we are examining the law and starting to think about how we can break it in a million different ways, we can start to see our problems. You can start to see your problem before God. Because Jesus said here, clearly on the words behind me, even a heart of anger and rage make you liable for judgment. Way back at the beginning in Genesis 9 verse 6, just after the flood, you know, Noah came along, God said to humankind, if you kill someone, then it is your life for theirs. If human life is killed, human life shall be taken. It sounds harsh, but God gives a premium level of the significance of humankind. Life for life, blood for blood, that's the way it is because we're all image bearers of God. If that sounds incredibly harsh, by the way, if everything here you're reading sounds incredibly harsh, then if I could be honest with you, you haven't understood what it means to be made in the image of God. When you do, and you start to understand the God whose image you bear, then you start to realize the problem you have when you're not treating other image bearers with that dignity that you should. Unfortunately, sorrow, being sorry for your, your behavior is insufficient. More bad news. I remember I preached on this message um, many years ago in one of the previous churches that I, I, um, I served. And there was a woman who came up to me, it doesn't happen very often, but a woman who came up to me at the end of the, the service. And um, she was absolutely racked with sorrow and grief to the extent that she was physically shaking and weeping in front of me. 
And so we went off to a <clears throat> more quiet place I could start to help her and try, try and understand what she was saying. And, and she was just so full of guilt. She was almost not making sense uh, because of the law of God and its implications for her. Um, she was full of sorrow. And so um, I, I wanted to make sure that she was not going to stay in that place, that she could hear the good news of Jesus. And so I asked her, um, when she'd calmed down a little bit, what is your relationship with Jesus? And her response I will never forget. She said, I'm a good person. What is your relationship to Jesus? I'm a good person. That's not even a good answer in terms of it doesn't really answer the question, but she's, that's what she heard when I said, what is your relationship to Jesus? She thought I was talking to her about her moral behavior. I'm a good person, she said. You see, when it comes to trying harder and being a better person, we're just going to fall flat on our faces, folks, because when we realize how much trouble we've created for ourselves, we, we start to see we cannot do enough to help ourselves. There's no amount of good behavior that's going to get you right before God. There's a remarkable passage in uh, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, uh, his writings called Isaiah. A remarkable passage throughout the first two-thirds of the book of Isaiah God has been taking his people to task, the people of Israel, uh, for tolerating injustice among them, uh, for tolerating murder, for tolerating unpunished and, and corrupt laws and practices, guilt upon guilt upon guilt, line upon line. And yet then we get to this section, a turning point, if you like, in the book of Isaiah. It's remarkable. In chapters 52 and 53, we come up against this uh, section that is called a servant song, right there in the middle of Isaiah. Who is the servant? What is the servant? The servant, according to Isaiah in his prophecy, was God's servant, someone who God had chosen and had sent by God to his people, someone who appears and acts on behalf of God's people to bring them from the terrible situation they are in to a place of blessing and love and life. That's what the servant of God was to be doing according to the prophecy of Isaiah. But in this stunning passage, nestled right in the center, are these words. And this is a summary of this amazing hymn. It's a, it's a song, it's a, the servant song. This is God speaking, and he says, Behold, you people, my servant shall act wisely. He's going to be a man of wisdom. And yet he goes on to say this remarkable phrase. His appearance, the servant, was so marred beyond human resemblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was despised and rejected by men. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Just when we thought things were going to get good for Israel and the servant was going to come and save them, there he is, receiving beatings and oppression and eventually killed. Horrendous, Pointless killing. Why, God, do you build your people up like that? And after this song finishes, we expect mourning. We expect more sadness. We expect more guilt. And yet, no. Because the very next passage after the servant song, the very first word of the next passage after the servant song, is sing. Sing. Sing because your hearts are so full of joy. Celebrate because blessing, O Israel, is yours. Life and peace and fullness in the presence of God is yours. Sing. Thus says the Lord, and he carries on. 
Therefore, because of this great joy and this great amazing thing that's happening to you, keep justice, do righteousness, live a just life, love your neighbor, because one day my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. He goes on to say, bring the foreigners in, the outsiders to come home. Come and receive the benefits of what the servant has done for you, whether you are an Israelite or whether you are from one of the other nations. Come, open up the doors. What is going on in this Isaiah passage and how, how is that related to what we're saying here in the Ten Commandments? Isaiah was predicting the gospel. This servant in the Isaiah passage is later revealed as Jesus, the Son of God. He is the servant sent by God to save God's people. And yet in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Jesus, the servant of God, was, was beaten, he was scorned, he was mocked, he was stripped, he was put on a cross, he was denied justice, just like Isaiah predicted. Jesus received the raging of the religious leaders. Jesus experienced the mockery and anger of the passers-by. Thou shalt not murder, said God. Black and white, clear as day, and yet there they are, murdering the servant. But folks, here is the gospel. This is the thing you have to hold on to. This is not an unfortunate example of a human problem. Because Isaiah said... He, the servant, that is, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord, that is God, laid on him, the servant, the sins of us all. What's he saying? He's using sort of old-fashioned language to say, your law-breaking, O Israel, O church, your law-breaking, your angry heart, your bitterness towards someone else, the harm that you have committed to someone else, your negligence, your taking of human life, all of that, all of that was put on Jesus. And here's the good news. Jesus took that to the grave. And yet he rose again on the third day. That is why there is celebration that comes after the morning. No one celebrates a funeral. It is a sad and somber moment. You only celebrate when death is beaten. And life comes. That's why you sing. So we've seen the law and all of its applications in the Old Testament. And yet we have seen that whilst none of us can really escape it, Jesus was the servant. And it's in him that we can be free. So let's think thirdly and finally then about how we respond to this, this commandment in today's day and age. Because when we see this, when we see the, the gospel of Jesus, when we see that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah, when we see that, that he has done this for you so that you can be forgiven and you can go free, then you will look at the law of God differently. Not as someone who is utterly trashed by your own guilt because you can never match up. Not as a religious person who is puffed up with pride because you're, you're really, really good at not murdering people. But instead, you look at the law. And when you understand Jesus and when you, when you trust him, then the Ten Commandments, when you take them at face value, will start to change you. 
because the gospel has changed your heart. The gospel, Jesus, as we've seen, deals with the root. So how does this work? Let me, let me be a bit more practical. <clears throat> See, when, we, when you put the gospel of Jesus, the good news, at the center of your life, when you make it the organizing principle around which everything else is organized, when you hold it fast, when you develop it, you take it deeper within yourself through disciplines of, of prayer and worship and, and reading the Bible and all that stuff, when that happens to you, you will be transformed. You will be transformed. When you realize he is the suffering servant for you, your heart will sing. You will say, I have broken this commandment and all of the others in a million different ways, and yet look at what Jesus has done for me. Look, look at how he has settled the score between me and God. Look at how he has reunited me to my Father. How can I allow anger and hatred and harm to cohabitate in my heart based on what Christ has done for me? See, the gospel deals with the root. It deals with the root. Jesus, in Matthew 5, when he was teaching on this commandment, he goes on further. This is what it looks like when the gospel has got you. So, says Jesus, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer the gift. See what he's saying? If you truly understand my teaching and you receive me by faith, and you see that your heart is angry, and when it's angry, you're, you're guilty before God. When you, when, when you receive me, when you know me and what I've come to do, then you won't even be consumed by that anger and bitterness towards someone else. Instead, you will be a peacemaker. You will go out of your way to be at peace with your fellow brothers and sisters. You will think the best about other people, not the worst. You will nip any animosity in the bud before it becomes a big, dirty, ugly thorn bush in your life. And Jesus said, if you get this, if you get the gospel, if you understand me, then you won't even come to worship before being right with someone else, before leaving your gift and being reconciled to that other person. Interestingly, as if the brother, that is the, the fellow member of the, the faith community, if, he had, if you think he's got something against you, you leave your gift and be reconciled. The onus is on you, even if you think you're in the right and he's in the wrong or she's in the wrong. You go. That's the root. That's the gospel getting it. You'll only do that if the gospel has grabbed your heart. Folks, imagine a church like that. So deeply, utterly transformed by the gospel of Jesus. The, the, the anger, there's not even a hint of anger. Not even a hint. Imagine a church where relationships are so quality that people are willing to have the awkward conversations with one another so that the community may flourish and so that anger will not have a foothold. It will not build up and divide one another. That's just one example of how the root can be changed by the gospel. The gospel deals with the root of your heart but it deals with the fruit as well because the root always leads to fruit. Tangible actions, measurable, practical things. As we saw after the servant song, there is the command to sing, you know, the calling to sing and then the command to keep justice and righteousness. It comes after the gospel. The root produces the fruit. And so as we've been seeing, it's not enough 
to simply avoid murder, but as those who have been transformed deeply by the gospel of Jesus, we are, as a church, let's get it right here at least, we are to actively pursue life and well-being of our neighbours. And who is our neighbour? Our neighbour can be as vast as it is wide. But we are to actively pursue their life and well-being, whoever they may be. The Protestant reformer John Calvin said, we must do, in our, in commentating, commentating on this commandment, he said, we must do all that is in our means and our opportunity to defend the safety of our fellow human being. So I know that's going to look different for each of you who are transformed and gripped by the gospel, but do all that is in your means and your opportunity for the betterment and the flourishing of your neighbour. One thing is clear, though. Being passive and doing nothing is not an option. It's not an option. Maybe, maybe you need to up your game when it comes to advocating for those who do not have a voice. Maybe that's something you need to do more. Maybe you have been quiet because you're held back by fear, what people think of you, rather than sticking up for the life and flourishing of other people. And I'm referring to many things here, both home and away. Of course, we have the incoming uh, impending laws on abortion. They're going to change the landscape here in Northern Ireland for generations to come. But also away, with international justice mission, are you going to stand up for the rights of those who do not have a voice, the poor and the vulnerable, the widow and the orphan? How you do that is down to your means and your opportunity. But even on a more general, daily, practical way, how are your actions seeking the life and well-being of your neighbour? Let's get real specific. How are your life and actions seeking the well-being of your boss at work? Are you speaking the best of them? Are you doing all that you can so they might have wellness and, and, and flourishing in their lives? What about your colleagues? What about those who work under you if you're in a position of authority and, and management or leadership? How are you seeking life and well-being of those people who live next, literally lit next door to you or along your road or in your community? Back to John Calvin again, then we're almost done. John Calvin says, we must have the utmost concern for the body of all humanity. But if that is the case, he says, how much more for the soul? Christian, if you're a Christian today, are you sharing your faith are you talking of Jesus Christ? Are you inviting friends and family, both believing and non-believing, to come to church to, to think through the implications of the Christian faith and, and try it on for size, effectively? So let me wrap it up by saying this. If you understand this teaching and the vastness of what Jesus, the suffering servant, has achieved on your behalf, your life will be transformed and you will be like a piece of yeast in a lump of dough. Actions that you think are small and insignificant will have a massive impact. Because when we, as a church and as a community, take seriously these Ten Commandments, then we will become a people of love and of justice and of purpose. And folks, that is truly revolutionary. Let's pray.